Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi. You guys, I'm so thrilled that the guests we have on this show today. Um, it's William Doyle and Posse Salberg, who are the authors of Let the Children Play, How More Play Will Save Our Schools and Help Children Thrive. So thank you both for being here um, and for the book. I love it. Um, would each of you just talk a little bit about yourself? So listeners, if they aren't already aware of you, uh, know, know who they're listening to. Posse, Bill, you go first. <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, thank fight, you so much. Fight, for, fight. I, it's, it's great to be on your show. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, yeah I'm William Doyle. I'm a career uh, New Yorker. Uh, my parents co-founded the first Montessori school in New York City, uh, which kind of got me into the business early in life because I was one of their test subjects in the first <laughs> graduating class. And thank goodness the school is still going strong uh, today, uh, Cadman Montessori School in the Upper East Side. And uh, when I had a child of my own, I happened to be working, who is now 15, uh, I happened to be working on a book about civil rights, uh, about James Meredith, the man who inter integrated the University of Mississippi 60 years ago. And um, we we didn't have enough words in the book. And I said to James Meredith, what do we do now? we got 40,000 words and we need 60 for the contract. And uh, we decided to interview uh, the greatest experts in America on early and uh, K through 12 education, and, uh, which was a passion of James Meredith, it is one, and asked them for their advice on how to fix America's schools, fix America's mm -hmm. schools. Uh, so, um, and, and I, by the way, have been a career uh, TV producer and writer of narrative nonfiction books. I worked for HBO, PBS, the History Channel, and I've written a number of uh, books on politics and history. And um, one of the experts we consulted, Howard Gardner, the great educator at yeah. uh, Harvard said, quote, uh, if you want to fix America's schools, look at Finland, which does the opposite of much of what we're doing in the United States. And by the way, read a great book called Finnish Lessons by your my my partner, Posse Salberg, uh, because that kind of tells the whole story. And I was intrigued by that. Long story short, I got a Fulbright scholarship to come to Finland, study the system which is very play-based, especially in the early years, and drop my child into the uh, system, which is quite beautiful in many, many ways and does many things uh, uh, differently and perhaps better than the United States is doing right now. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came to this book. Uh, Posse and I hit it off, and we thought that uh, especially the United States deserved a book like this that focused on the biggest missing piece of education and one of the most critical ones in our opinion which is play so that's how we got to where we are great thanks yeah right, let's see it's your turn <laughs> yeah about the same time when uh when uh, william uh came to finland i was um in the united states actually teaching at harvard university with uh, howard gardner and uh and i, I think it was 2016 when um 
Lego Foundation awarded me with their prestigious uh, Lego Prize uh, that had been previously awarded to people like Sir Ken Robinson and uh, and Nicolas Necroponte and and some others. So I, I I took it very seriously to to receive a global recognition like this, and uh, mm-hmm. and I was uh, kind of thinking, what does it mean for my professional life? I, I hadn't done much work in early education or play before that a lot of work in creativity and pedagogy and those things and then we but just by accident met by um met met with uh, bill doyle and started to talk about this he you know his experience in finland and mine in the united states and uh, first we said let's let's write a little article for <laughs> one of the magazines in the united states about this our experiences and then knowing knowing william as a as a first class writer he, he writes very fast and and uh, excellent, one of the best writers I've ever ever known. And uh, so when I was looking at these first drafts, I said, William, you know, this is not an article, this is a book. So so that's how it started. And, and we really went on around the world to uh, look at the play in different countries and different settings. And, uh, uh, and, you know, the rest is history. Then this book came about and it has given both of us, I guess, a lot of pleasure and, and also kind of a, brought us closer to one another in terms of... Uh, understanding the importance of play but also understanding the importance of of co-writing in a sense that that you know I, I i could never write a book like this by myself alone with having somebody a first class uh writer like william and bill you often tell me that uh, you needed me to make sure that the the content the education aspects are correct so i i think that this is a this book is a really a, a, a fruit of a a very um uh, deep and close collaboration and understanding and mutual respect to one another's views uh, uh, and and professionalism. And I hope that people people see that when they read the book. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so how, why this book? Why was this the thing you both wanted to to work on? I think probably well, if I if I go first, I feel <laughs> that you know, it really started from this uh, notion that we had in our conversations that. That when you when when you were in Finland with your family, you reali- realized how how different the Finnish education is in terms of you know having much less instruction time and much more emphasis on outdoor play and creativity and childhood in in general. You know the kids go to school much later. I was in the United States where it was completely opposite. You know I experienced these uh, these questions from a kindergarten so early early childhood centers. My youngest son was a I think he was about three years old uh, that time, and you know, people were asking questions like how many how many words he knows or how many numbers he can count. And I said, you know, in Finland, nobody would ever ask anything like this. That you know, the question would be rather like, like you know, what type of play you like like to do. And uh, so we had these conversations with uh, with Bill and uh, and kind of realized that there's a there's a trend in the around the world uh, that that is a Kind of a bringing like a declining play uh, the 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 uh, the value that families and certainly education systems give to play and uh, and we just thought that you know there's probably room for a book like this especially bringing the perspectives from a Finnish person like myself living in the United States and an American friend uh, expert who uh, uh, who looks at these things in in Finland in a different way so, so we thought it's a kind of, kind of a intriguing. Uh, a cocktail of of different perspectives, but Bill, what, how, how do you see the uh, the uh, the genesis of this this thing? 
Right. Well, again, it was very much from being a father myself and sitting on playground benches in New York mm -hmm. City, uh, which is in many ways the most magnificent city on earth <laughs> with, um, with some of the greatest education and most involved parents and opinionated uh, parents, by the way. So I would sit on playground benches, watch my child play, you know, all weekend, making new friends, and I would talk to parents. And the consensus seemed to be that I was starting to accept um, was that uh, gladiatorial, gladiatorial combat and resource hoarding and competitive maneuvering by parents was the best path to the Ivy League, I guess, which <laughs> wow. be, you know the, the 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 reason for for living in many ways in mm -hmm. uh, these days. Um, the way to clear that path for your child, um, starting at age, let's say four, where people tutor their children with professional tutors in New York to get into um, elite preschools. Elite preschools. Think of this phrase now. It's <laughs> wild. Now, when you look at the elite preschools in New York City, guess what they do? I went to almost every one of them. There are eight, like the Ivy League, roughly. Um, and, you know, it's 50, uh, dollars to $50,000 a year. Um, and um, guess what they all do pretty much all day with their children from ages, uh, let's say, you know, three plus to uh, seven, eight through, through kindergarten. They play. This is what the rich elite Park Avenue, Wall Street, uh, and other successful uh, families get. Now, what's happening in the rest of American education for the last 20 years in a, in a tragic, almost like a horror movie reality is that um, the system has been demolished by the cult of standardized testing, which we all, policymakers, many of us, policymakers, especially policymakers who know nothing about early childhood education, mm -hmm have somehow adhered to and um, surrendered to as the God or the governing metric, let's say, of all education, including early education. As a result, play and the arts and outdoor activity, all the things that, that you and many of our, our audience know is the lifeblood, the critical foundation of, of any education without which nothing good happens. Uh, has been removed from kindergarten. Play is gone in at least half the uh, kindergartens in the United States. So that that was kind of a cry for uh, sanity that we issue in our book. The good news is that this book has direct uh, let the children play has directly triggered a recess law, for example, in the state of Illinois, which has by law restored play to at least three hundred thousand children who did not have any assurance of getting recess regularly, much recess on a daily basis. It also resulted in three New York City school boards issuing pro-recess and pro-play resolutions in a city that has largely wiped out or used even used recess as punishment, mm -hmm. withholding recess. So that's kind of, you know, we see some urgency to this because we think that the more play, the more outdoor uh, activity, and the more freedom we offer children, especially in the early years, the greater the overall outcome. And we think that our book is filled with research that indicates that is a really important uh, reality. It is. That's one of the things that I, um, I mean, the writing is just very powerful, but but the uh, the research that sort of is the foundation for a lot of it was really um, important to me as I read it. Uh, my day job is to teach uh, early childhood education at a community college. So being able to say, 
oh yeah, here's the research <laughs> is really helpful with students who are in programs. You know, most of them already work in an early childhood program and a lot of them are very academic based and, and nervous about play um, or feel helpless with if they want to allow children more play. So I appreciate that. Um, let me read this this bit from the book before we go further. Um, so so this again, the book is called Let the Children Play, How More Play Will Save Our Schools and Help Children Thrive, um, with the bonus forward by Sir Ken Robinson, which was also fun to read. But um, so here you wrote uh the anti-play warriors believe that in order to quote unquote catch up with nations that achieve higher scores on international benchmark tests to reduce achievement gaps and to equip children with again, quote unquote, 21st century skills necessary for future workforce and individual career success. American children as young as four years old need to sit still in class and be subjected to near total play deprivation, constant direct instruction, drilling, penalties for failure attached to test data, hours and hours of excessive homework and chronic sleep deprivation all the way through high school. The anti-play crusaders call this academic rigor necessary to get kids on track for college and career with 21st century skills. Childhood development experts, by contrast, consider it other things, developmentally inappropriate, education mal educational malpractice, and even borderline child abuse. That's pretty strong. <laughs> um, so I just would would you res will you respond to to that? Why you why you wrote that? What did you mean? Why the strong language? No, I I, th I think you know the talking about this twenty first century skills. I think, um, and and Bill, you can say something something about the the kind of earlier part, but. You know, I'm I'm often since the book came came out some time ago. People have been asking me that. So, what are the benefits of play? Like seriously, why should we pay more attention to early childhood play or play? You know, throughout the schooling, and I'm often saying this. You know, my my background is uh, I was a secondary school mathematics and science teacher in Finland for many years. Um, and, you know, since the 21st century skills, this idea came around that includes, you know, all, all these important things like complex problem solving and communication and collaboration and all these C's or whatever they are. Um, you know, myself and many others say that, you know, these are really difficult things to teach in a school. I don't know how to, you, you know, what to do in a busy high school schedule or curriculum so that we can teach these important 21st century skills. And I think the one realization that we made with Bill do, during the research and, and working on this book is that, you know, many of these benefits that the research and uh, experts who have been looking at the benefits of play are exactly the, they're almost identical to these uh, 21st century skills. So, so that's why I think there's a good reason still, and I, you know, I would probably even use stronger words if I could writing the same thing again, saying that, you know, if we really take this seriously, that children in the future, that they need these 21st century skills, this thinking and problem solving and communication skills, empathy and leadership, much more than, uh, you know, we did when when we went to school, then the best, best thing to do with these kids is to, you know, let them play, because that's exactly how these skills are and, and, and the habits of minds uh, are, are developed rather than trying to directly you know, teach 
high school kids, uh, you know, some of these things that is, mm -hmm. is very hard, more, more difficult. So, and, and, you know, when I speak about these things um, to primary school teacher, early childhood educators, uh, I live in Australia now, I do a lot of work in this space. Uh, you know, this is like a new thing for many people. There's, I, I never thought about play as something that would be planting the seeds of these, you know, all these important skills in yeah. life that needs. Um, and as soon as people realize this, that they kind of understand the play, it's not just the kind of having fun or doing something that kids should be doing, that it's really helping children to to kind of find a pathway into these 21st century skills that they need in work and life and further studies, that's when people really begin to, to kind of realize that, you know, there's something magic in this play. And that's why, like, like now when I read the uh, the, the, the William Dawes and Pussy's book, I, I really understand what they're saying. Uh -huh. but, but with this, I, I, I throw the ball back to you, Bill. And um, I, I know that you can articulate this, uh, this passage of the book uh, more than I could. Well, you know, every now and then, it's almost like the heavens open up, metaphorically, <laughs> and some, some great truth is revealed with a great quote. And two of my favorite quotes in this land, in this area are, number one, the American Academy of Pediatrics, children's doctors, who are rarely, who are rarely consulted in the design of schools and curriculum and, uh, you know, children's weekly life schedule. They said not long ago talking about the key to life success for children. Now, what 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 else do parents want for their children? Life success. Like, that's kind of the holy grail. Okay. Their quote was that a child's lifelong success depends on their ability to be creative and to apply the lessons learned from playing, unquote. In other words, it's not digital keyboarding skills. It's not <laughs> Um, you know, it's not um, pressure, stress. It's not we're doing homework until uh, 10 o'clock at night or 1 a.m. in the morning necessarily, you know, through middle school. It's playing. And Posse just articulated all the benefits that flow out of playing, on top of which the hard research shows that physical activity, when you define uh, play as including physical activity, physical activity, there's like a magic pill. It's free largely, mm -hmm. but if you administer it to children in regular doses through the day, like they do here in Finland, 15 minutes per hour, free outdoor play, no matter how rainy or cold it is, children are much sharper, more alert, more focused, and on task for the whole day, because most teachers will tell you that very little learning occurs after 1 p.m., but mm -hmm. this way you can extend the, you know, the focus through the day. So um, that's number one, is, is the doctor's quote, and the second quote I, I, I love so much is from the 1954 Supreme Court Brown versus Board of Education decision, which is rightly hailed as opening the gates of integration in our society. But there's a passage uh, in that um, uh, decision that I think we all need to remember, you know, write down in our notebooks. And that is, quote, public education is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms, unquote. And that speaks to the fact that uh, the poorer you are in the United States, you know, I talked earlier about the Ivy League preschools in New York City. Yeah. Well, if you happen to be especially black or brown and or poor and or in the inner city, your chances of getting any play, which is the developmentally appropriate expert, you know, research backed 
um, foundation of early education, especially, your chances of getting any player are almost negligible. And that is doing violence to the uh, notion of childhood, in my opinion, and of cherishing childhood. And, you know, Posse and I got in a very interesting uh, dispute with a self-appointed education reformer uh, who, who wrote a big article about our book. He said he loved it, but this play thing, will ne- I'm paraphrasing, it'll never work for poor kids. Never <laughs> work. In fact, you give poor kids all this play, it's going to, it's, uh, you're going to doom, they'll they basically be doomed. Mm-hmm. So uh, don't pay attention to that part of the book. And we thought, wait a second, you know what Amer- the American Pediatric Association says, the American Academy of Pediatrics, Poor children need this more than anybody. Mm-hmm. So there's a real, um, as Posse said earlier, sometimes this comes as a new information or like a revelation to even parents or some educators, but it is a headline that should be shouted from the rooftops, <laughs> which is don't think about play, yes. give it to children, and you'll see the magic happen in their attitude, their learning, and their life, perhaps. Yeah. It's, it's, I used to get, I used to be a childcare center director and I would get so um, sort of impatient, a little bit grouchy when a parent would call, <clears throat> you know, looking for childcare for their, for their uh, child and say, well, do they learn anything there or do they just play? And, and then another friend said something like, well, they're advocating for their child's educational success in the way that they've been marketed, like in the, the way that they know best with the information they have and that helped me soften a little bit and see uh see my role as um sort of a guide and an advocate for play um but uh it it, i i just feel like that's so much pressure parenting is already so hard but to feel like if you don't do everything exactly right and exactly right means academics and early stress and um less movement and play deprivation um that's really that, that puts folks in a really rough position i think right right well um, uh children are I think biologically engineered to move, to wiggle, yes. to squirm. One thing, one thing they do here in in the and I remember going to for a, for a certain period of time. I went to a Catholic, um, sort of a stereotypically punitive Catholic grammar school, and I was a boy. I was what 12, uh, 11, 10. and I was going crazy all day because I wanted to wiggle and move and run around, and I was ordered not to so i was i think shackled and felt very much imprisoned but um it is a uh, strange reality that when you administer these doses of play the results even on short-term standardized tests and focus and on-task behavior jump significantly there are experiments being done right now in texas oklahoma and other parts of the united states where they literally test this and the results are striking and um, conclusive and, and, you know, uniformly patterned. So I don't know why we don't do, don't do this a lot more. That, I think parents parents have to uh, administer pressure to the yes. system, including politicians especially, and get get off this standardized test um, cult that has taken over the, uh, uh, the system. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to circle back around to 21st century skills um, because there was another spot in the book. I, Posse, you talked about this a lot. 
uh, a minute ago, but I didn't want to interrupt the flow by asking this then. But but there's a spot in the book where you say, um, <clears throat> I don't know which of you wrote this part, but one of you says the phrase 21st century skills is often more of a marketing slogan for for reformers. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that? Yeah, I can I can admit that it's probably mine, my idea. <laughs> but we have actually interestingly very few things in the book that we would have kind of have a debate over. But you know, this 21st century skill skills is something uh, you know, the turn turn of the millennium it came around uh, not from educators or 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 school experts. This this was a more more of a commercial idea to um you know package some of these some of these things that some people wanted to sell sometimes to their consultants or you know people who just wanted to put this the the old stuff in a new package because mm -hmm. of the the millennium uh started and there was a lot of pushback in the beginning uh that time i remember why I, I was one of those who kind of a, didn't like the idea that that something is brought into education as a as a commercial product but now i think when we we have passed a couple of decades 20 years behind that the 21st century skills now has a little bit different thing because it's not anymore considered as as something that somebody wants to sell as it was earlier that now it really means something that people that young people especially young people need now and tomorrow to um you know understand what's going on in the world and uh, you know being successful in work and being successful in life um and it has a it has probably now more neutral meaning uh in in education circles that that what it used to be you know 20 years ago people tried to kind of a package in uh define what 21st century skills are and oftentimes we said you know i was one of them and and some others who said that you know uh, you know many of these things like thinking skills and collaboration and um, and creativity those things they, they, these are old you know they have been around in education a long time yeah uh, so so i i think it, it it had a kind of a bad flavor uh 20 25 years ago but it has now become more neutral and i think it's a it's a fairly fairly positive and and um and and good term to use to to briefly say something that otherwise would take a long time to define what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, Heather, there's also um, something that we discovered in China. Uh, we went all around the world for this book, literally uh, looking at experiments in Japan and China and Europe and across uh, the global Mexico. south. And um, we uh, in China, there's something extraordinary happening. And you know, the People's Republic of China is um, a country with which I have some major policy disagreements, uh, sure. to, to, to say the least. However, um, there are some beautiful things happening in a place called Anji County, A-N-J-I. Yeah. And there's yeah. a, a Jesse Cofino has been on the show a few times with us. That's from, terrific. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, it's I, I saw it, I lived and I breathed it, and it's the opposite of everything you know stereotypical you could imagine early childhood education would be in china uh -huh. and it is instead a vision of a beautiful free outdoor play-based joy infused um childhood for uh children who are playing you know in in play yards with the hat with a hammer and sickle flag <laughs> flying over them uh, with portraits of mao zedong and karl marx in the 
political uh-huh. teacher's lounge, uh-huh. but something that's giving children such joy and freedom and I think creativity uh, that they're adopting it more widely there. And that's something I think we should all be looking at and learning from. And um, there are great things happening here in Finland. Uh, you know, I, th- I think there is no education utopia, no matter where you sure. go. I, I've, I've learned that there's challenges everywhere, but uh, um, the, uh, again, I keep coming back to the, the, the research and the idea that maybe we don't have to pressure cooker our children to deliver future success to them. Maybe we should trust them a bit more to figure out their own path and that um, uh, regular constant doses of the, the childhood language of learning play, which I think extends, Posse and I think that this extends well into high school, that we should be uh, delivering education in a way that, would, that that allows much more creativity and freedom and experimentation and encouraging children to fail and fail repeatedly and learn from that failure and, and have the system rearrange itself to serve children's needs rather than forcing children into a box that they must perform in or Mm -hmm. declared failures. Right. And failure is always a deficit um, in some of our systems. Uh, I I think, I think it's in this book, one of you, or you talk about a failure Academy. Does that sound familiar? It sounds, yes. (laughs) And, and, you know, William, you, you live in a country now that is, it's the only country in the world I know that celebrates every year a, a national, they have a national failure day. That is, a, I think it's the thirteenth of October, or something like this, where everyone, you know, in the workplaces and schools and uh, communities, they recognize the importance of failure, and and bring kind of acute anecdotes and stories about that. So I think uh, that's that's another one of those free things that anybody can take, um, uh, and uh, you know, try to understand differently the the power of uh, failure and learning from mistakes that mm-hmm. you know play is all about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, go ahead, Bill. We have Success Academy. Why not a few days of Failure Academy every, <laughs> uh, every uh, month? And we you know where principals stand up and explain to the whole community how they screwed up uh-huh. over the last couple of weeks and how things are going wrong. I remember there was, um, I did the grand tour of all the um, private schools in New York City. Uh, both for this book and for my child's uh, education. He, he wound up going to some private schools and to some public schools. But th- the number one school in New York City, like the ultimate, ultimate private school is Trinity, Trinity uh, School. Mm-hmm. And um, it, that was the one headmaster who came out on the stage to all these high achieving parents, you know, by the, by the hundreds. And he said, we're not doing very well here. And there was a gasp in the crowd. And he basically did a confession of like failure. And it was like a failure academy. And I thought, this is the most creative, you know, inspiring thing I ever saw. And he went through a list of things that they weren't doing that well. Diversity, uh, several other areas. And I thought, boy, that's the way I'm going to start all my meetings from now on. Confess your failures. It's the new icebreaker. Um, so I know we've, we've been talking for a while, but there was one more, um, uh, thing that I wanted to hear a little bit about because, um, uh, which is plays impact on children's mental well-being, And, and you kind of touch on this, um, at the end where you just 
you not the end, but towards the end, you highlight that um, intrinsically motivated children play because they love it. And intrinsic motivation is rooted in three fundamental psychological needs for children's development, autonomy, competence, um, and the, and relatedness. Um, so I didn't, I didn't tell you I was going to ask it about that part, but can you just talk a little bit more about how, how that's connected to play or, or what intrinsic means for play? No, I, I think that in, intrinsic motivation that is the root of all meaningful things, including learning is something that is fundamental to play. Uh, in the book, we, I, I think one area that we spend more time than many others is to try to define what, uh, what defines um, play. How do we yeah. understand that? And I think that our, our, starting point was the play has to be in, intrinsically motivated me, meaning that it's something that the children do or whoever is playing because they really want to do it mm-hmm. it's not something that you know children should not play because teacher or parents are asking them to do that mm-hmm. but they feel that you know they have to do it and you know even worse that then they will be rewarded or or given a grade or something like that that you know much of the learning in school is is all about it's not you know, much of the learning, unfortunately, still in school is not intrinsically motivated. It's, it's something that kids do because they, they think that they have to do it to earn a credit or something like that, mm-hmm. that they, they can move on. And in a, in a play, I think the the fundamental uh, element is that the, the children do it because it's a, it's a natural way of living and making sense uh, out of the world. You ask about the mental health thing. I think you know, this book was published just at the dawn of the, uh, the this big global pandemic um, mm-hmm. called the COVID-19 uh, crisis. And what we learned, we didn't know anything about COVID, of course, when we were writing the book, because it came out before that. But w- what I saw, uh, saw here in, um, in Australia, and Australia was one of those places, both Melbourne and Sydney, that was pretty much locked down a long period of time, meaning that kids were not able to go out. They, mm-hmm. they, the schools were closed, and you know what many people now say that is that that you know the play in a way was a savior for many kids to you know keep them sane at home mm-hmm. because they could do the things that they were they couldn't see their friends or do the not normal things that play was kind of a thing and this is what I hear from many parents and also educators that play was the thing that you you know helped children to make sense of this crazy world that we were in that we we hardly remember now you know it's just a couple of years ago yeah and, and that they the you know the people realize that you know play the power of play is also partly because it helps people to understand the world around them mm-hmm. and you know in good and bad you know when, when you have beauty and nature and you know all these things that you, you kind of realize how beautiful world is uh, that you live in but also when when things go bad, like during the COVID, when you know many of these normal things were restricted, that play is something that helps you to understand, you know, what's going on and helps you to kind of keep this flame of hope, um, you know, burning. That you mm-hmm. know, someday this will be over, and that's why I think, uh, you know, for this mental health point of view, uh, now w- what the what the kind of outcomes of this thing is that we we understand much many people understand much more how important the play actually is mm-hmm. to make sure that we can uh, we can enhance and maintain the the wellness mental health, wellness of our children yeah 
And Heather, you remember the there was a famous Seinfeld episode where uh, I'm George... such a Seinfeld junkie. <laughs> well, you know this better than no, I think about that. So <laughs> well, George Costanza suddenly started doing everything the exact opposite yeah. of what he had been doing. Yeah. And his life was transformed into success, you know, into a golden future. And I think that uh, a lot of what we do in childhood education, we should just stop and think for a second about maybe doing largely the opposite of doing some of the things that are being done here in Finland and 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 in um, rural rural China that we write about in the book and and metropolitan Tokyo that we write about in the book and learning from each other more and you know um, we talk to a lot of children in this book and Posse Salberg my my co-author um, launched a new playground in a little town in Croatia and we went to the children there to talk about play. This is just a beautiful, it was, a, it was an old fashioned, kind of a rusty old playground and Posse created a new playground. Uh, and uh, we talked to children and what they said, I think is what children would say around the world. They said things like, uh, you know, hey, listen, uh, what if a, an adult told you, we asked them, you, you shouldn't be playing so much. Playing is kind of silly. It's a waste of time. And they all, these were children from you know four to eight or 10 uh -huh. and they said, and almost universally, they would say things like, well, I, I tell that adult that they're they're being silly. <laughs> I would, and I would just keep playing. Or, or that's ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I would tell this adult to come play with me. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, there was a, the last thought is that uh, there was a girl, uh, a girl here in Finland about uh, 13 years, 12, 13 years old, a friend of my uh, sons. And I asked her, you know, quite innocently, hey, so what age do you think people stop playing, stop going to the playground? Like, when does that happen around here? Is it 11? Is it 12? And she looked at me very evenly with cold eyes. And she said, I will never stop playing. We will never leave the playground. Uh, <laughs> That's straight. That's right. <laughs> That's Do not. you understand? I will never leave this playground. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought we need to hear that we need the voice of children a lot more. Yeah. That's one of the things that Posse has campaigned for his whole career. And maybe that's where we should be starting. How about asking them what they want more of and what they need? Uh, and, you know, one one other thought is um, sometimes parents in New York, I talk to them about this and they say, ah, oh, it's Lord of the Flies. Yeah. If you if you stand back, put your hands down and go against the wall and don't interfere with children's play and children's activity, they're going to wind up like Lord of the Flies. They're going to slaughter each other and, you know, drink each other's blood, I guess. But there was a real Lord of the Flies. That book was based on a real episode where the children, I think it was a, a half a dozen or a dozen boys, were stranded on an island for a very, very long period of time. What did they do? They cooperated. They helped each other. They all survived and they all thrived, you know, to this day as, mm -hmm. as adults. So maybe that's the, the, the reality that we adults need to, to, to yeah. think about. Yeah, my experience has been the more playful I became and the more play I, I'll say, quote, unquote, allowed children to do, the fewer behavior problems I actually saw or, or you know, the, the fewer things I felt like were problems, uh, you know, which was the opposite of the expectation. I hear that Lord of the Flies all the time when I talk about um, uh, moving back to play in our early childhood programs, but uh, my, yeah, own, my own like, experience is it's opposite. I'm sorry, Posse. Yeah, no, it's like George Bernard Shaw said that 
we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Yes, that's a great one. I love that one. Yeah. yeah. That might be a good place to uh to wrap up our conversation on the on that on that quote from from uh George Bernard Shaw. Um is there anything uh any last are there any last thoughts, things you you hoped to talk about or want to leave folks with? Well, I would I would just uh, reinforce what Posse said about the post-COVID. Uh, all you hear, all you read about in the United States these days, is, uh, children are falling behind. Yeah. They're fall. Well, they've got to catch up, and that usually means emergency, accelerated tutoring. It means a lot more time on screens being drilled into, uh, you know, various software programs. And maybe we should all realize that these children are all going to grow up with certain deficits and strengths. And that uh, in addition to helping them academically, which is important, of course, we've got to give them the thing that, the thing that they want the most, that they're missing the most, mm -hmm. and we have taken away from them. We have to give it back to them. This, this has been given to children, you know, since the dawn of time. Uh, this has been a a, a memory and a, and 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 a uh, human behavior. Uh, there's one uh, expert in our book who said uh, that he thinks that half the diagnoses of ADHD in the United States are misdiagnosed uh, uh, situations of children who are being deprived of play and movement and mm -hmm. physical. That, that part of play and if that's through you know if that's true that's such a uh, a mega insight so we should open our minds to uh, what we read in the headlines and what the some of the so-called experts who are not early childhood uh, uh -huh. experts not teachers are telling us the politicians and the policymakers and pay more attention to the children and i think we may wind up helping themselves and ourselves uh, helping them and ourselves a, a great deal more if we did yeah. that yeah yeah um, well, thank you both so much for this conversation and for the book. Um, we'll link, we'll link the book when the podcast comes out. So maybe everybody will get their hands on it and, uh, and we can keep the revolution going <laughs> towards play. Um, but I appreciate your time. Um, and I appreciate you both helping me figure out the time zones as we, as we tried to coordinate Indiana and Helsinki and Melbourne. <laughs> um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh...